Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, so this is my joke. Uh, what has six legs is green, and if it falls out of a tree, it can kill you. What? A pool table. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM, American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download the culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Tom Champion from the great Aussie band The Preachers. That'll help break the ice. They are part of an avalanche of bands that'll be pouring into the CMJ Music Festival this month. Later, we'll speak with actor Dane DeHaan. He's in the new movie Kill Your Darlings and the forthcoming Amazing Spider-Man 2. Plus, legendary designer Massimo Vignelli gives us hell. Vetica. Nice. Musician Anna Calvi suggests a dinner party soundtrack, and we learn why Little Richard threw away his diamond rings. Short answer, he basically got a divorce from rock and roll. But Good first, golly. <laughs> but first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The government has been shut down since last week. Former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick has been sentenced to 28 years in prison. President Barack Obama officially nominated Janet Yellen to be the next Federal Reserve chairman. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is a senior writer at The Atlantic. Richard, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about what the pronoun I says about you. Oh, clever. Clever. What what does it say about us? Well, according to a bunch of studies that they did at the University of Texas, where they put people in various social situations, fake office situations, the people who said the pronoun I fewer times were deemed to have more authority and sort of commanded the room better than people who constantly refer to themselves, which is kind of the inverse of what you'd think. Yeah. Yeah. You'd think think that, you know, if someone's talking about themselves all the time, they're sort of proud. So if you say I, you actually come across as weak and lacking authority? Basically. I mean, if you're in a work situation and you keep saying I, you're sort of putting the work on yourself versus if you just never refer to yourself, then the assumption is that people will do it for you. So that's because there's no I in team. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's all clear to me right now. No, there's scientific basis for that saying. (laughs) See, I would have guessed that the people who don't say I would actually invite disrespect because Clearly, they don't know how to use pronouns correctly. Like maybe they like they, cavemen. Yeah, they just say me well, like I, food. I would argue that cavemen <laughs> command a lot of authority. I mean, you have, you that's know. a good point. That's <laughs> so a good point. They got those big stone clubs. The one thing that you do want to be careful of, though, they noted in this study, in marriages, it is good to say I. Right. Because it seems less accusatory. Like saying, I'm upset instead of you upset me. To be married, you have to say I. You right. have four words you need to say. I do, I do on either side. That's, <laughs> that's two eyes. Good point. Yeah. Don't leave yeah. somebody at the altar just because they say I. That's supposed to happen. <laughs> right. That's it. All right. <laughs> me need to thank you for coming here, Richard. <laughs> Thanks for the small talk. Thank you. I as well. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a swimming pool full of gin. Mm. Yeah, with like a big olive instead of a beach ball floating in there. All right. First, the history. (laughs) This week, back in 1957, the self-described architect of rock and roll abandoned rock and roll. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. By the late 1950s, Little Richard's career was hot as hell. In just two years, he'd racked up seven gold records. And when he played them live, crowds swooned as if possessed. People had to be kept from hurling themselves from balcony seats just to get closer to him. And afterwards, many, many of them got intimately closer to him backstage. But in October 57, Everything changed. 
On a night flight to an Australian gig, Richard looked out the window, saw the red-hot engines, and thought they were on fire. Simultaneously, he had a vision of angels holding the plane aloft. Then, after landing, a ball of flame shot across the sky. It turned out to be the Russian satellite Sputnik, but Richard took it all as an omen. On the ferry a few days later, he told his bandmates he was leaving rock and roll to become a man of God. And to prove it, he threw his diamond rings into the waves. For five years, Richard made good on his promise. He traded in his legendary promiscuity for marriage. He went to college to study theology, and the only music he recorded was gospel. Richard returned to secular rock in 62 for a series of historic shows in Europe. But he never recaptured the level of fame he gave up five years before. Soon he was eclipsed by the style of pop practiced by his relatively unknown opening act, the Beatles. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Rebecca McGalliard, bartender at the TikTok Room in Little Richard's birthplace of Macon, Georgia. Rebecca, you heard the story. What drink did that inspire? Well, it inspired me to make our martini, the good golly, Miss Molly. (laughs) You have that on the menu already? No, I don't. We actually already had a long, tall Sally martini, but I made this one specially for the interview. (laughs) Oh, well, that's very nice of you. You should start an entire Little Richard menu. (laughs) We definitely could. There's so many artists, though, from Macon, Georgia, and that played at the TikTok room that we have a full martini list of artist-inspired martinis. Wait, Little Richard played at the TikTok room? He did. He actually played around 1949. Um, Miss Anne's TikTok room is what it was called back then. That is amazing. I didn't, who else was played there? Well, we also had Otis Redding, James Brown, Johnny Jenkins. Those are just a few that we've had. We're just going to do a ton of rock and roll histories and just come back and back and back to you for drinks. (laughs) All right. So the good golly, Miss Molly, what is in this thing? a little bit more southern type of feel so I used the Remy Martin VSOP but in addition to it I added a splash of cherry juice simple syrup fresh lime and lemon juice why both the lime and the lemon juice I really wanted it to give you that sour like tart taste and then end with a sweetness oh that's true if you've ever listened to any of his gospel music his voice he's known for being a screamer but he has just a beautiful beautiful gospel voice well it punches you too (laughs) it gets you in the face his voice and this drink it has all of the dynamics that i feel like little richard really brought into rock and roll i did it sounds wonderful although i do to really nail it i think you should put a diamond ring at the bottom of the glass like his discarded (laughs) diamond ring just so somebody can maybe throw it to their bartender. Well, it would be perfect for when people <laughs> propose to other people at your bar. Very true. That's a really good idea. We do have a lot of proposals on the weekend. <laughs> There'll be peace in the valley for me someday. And there is that sweet voice. Stunning. He's amazing. Also, Brendan, I should tell you, from what Rebecca was telling me, it sounds like Little Richard spent a lot of time at the TikTok room. And this was in his very wild early days. (laughs) Wow. If you know what I'm saying. So if those walls could talk, we'd have to wash their mouths out with soap. (laughs) 
<laughs> Trying People, to envision that. Uh, <laughs> you can wash your mouths out with our drink recipes. They're online at dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, so we've made a little small talk, mixed some drinks. Let us now keep the party going with more music, because I think Little Richard would approve. And for that, we turn to rock musician Anna Calvi. She's soft-spoken until she lets fly with her huge singing voice. Right. In 2011, her striking stage presence and tight guitar style made her a star in the UK. Her new album came out this week. Here she is to DJ your next party. Hi, I'm Anna Calvi, and I have a new album out called One Breath. I've been asked to bring some songs along. So this is my dinner party soundtrack. Number one is David Bowie's Valentine's Day from his new record, The Next Day. Valentine told me who's to go. I think it would probably be played within the conversation of me saying I'm so super happy that he put another record out. Because I remember it was just after I finished recording my record. It was like, it felt like a treat. It's Valentine's Day, the rhythm of the crowd. I've been listening to his music since I was a little kid. And for me as a singer, I learnt a lot from him. He really manipulates his voice. I mean, if you hear different records, he sounds almost like a different singer and he's getting into a character and singing from the depths of that character. I guess that's why he's, you know, a good actor as well. And also just, I suppose, the way that he uses his body as a piece of art is very interesting and something that I thought about when I started dressing in this flamenco, male flamenco style, which I felt represented the passion in my music. The next song I would play is I Follow Rivers by Licky Lie. You know, I don't really listen to much pop music, but she's right on the edge for me. When it sounds very much kind of computer synthesized music, it kind of turns me off, but I think that's kind of what's good about this record is it sounds like real instruments are being played. I think at this point people are getting a bit drunk, a bit rowdy, and I think this is an appropriate song for this dinner party period. I guess that's what's good about pop music is it doesn't require your full attention constantly. So the next song that I would play would probably be, you know, post-drunk, everyone's pretty tired, but no one can be bothered to move yet because they've got too much food in their stomachs. I think I would probably play um, True Love Leaves No Traces, which is a Leonard Cohen song off Death of a Ladies Man. The story of that album was he recorded it with Phil Spector and it sounds like a crazy experience of Phil Spector kind of waving a gun around and I think Leonard Cohen wasn't really happy with it. But I really love it. I like the way he kind of pairs his voice with female singers. It's just a really sleazy and beautiful song. Sometimes with Leonard Cohen, 
you feel like you have no idea what he's talking about, but it sounds really clever and really beautiful. Whereas on Death of a Ladies Man, they're clever and they're beautiful and you understand what he's talking about. They seem quite personal. The line I really like is... So my body leaves no scar on you and never will. I don't know, there's something quite hypnotic about that. I would probably have to be pretty drunk to want to put on my own album and my own dinner party. But let's say that I was. I think I might play suddenly. The lyrics are kind of about trying to get over something difficult, trying to move on from someone. It's like suddenly I leave it all behind, like you just leave all the mess for someone else to clear up while you go home to bed. It tastes like I'm Calvi, her new album One Breath came out this week, proving once again the old adage, speak softly and play gigantic guitar licks. <laughs> I think that. that was that was Theodore Nugent who said that, right? <laughs> yes. Always the statesman, Mr. Yeah. Nugent. All right, folks, coming up, rising film star Dane DeHaan says movies are magic. They literally built Times Square in Long Island. Billy Joel must have been ecstatic. <laughs> that and more when the Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, we eat paste, mm. the spicy fish variety, as we explore <laughs> Filipino cuisine. And in a few minutes, the guy who brought Steve Martin to the big screen, David Picker. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it is actor Dane DeHaan. After appearing on TV's True Blood and In Treatment, he starred as a troubled teen with telekinesis in the surprise hit movie Chronicle. Next year, he plays villain Harry Osborn in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and he is starring now alongside Daniel Radcliffe in Kill Your Darlings. This is a period drama. It's about the early days of the beat poets attending Columbia University. He plays poet Allen Ginsberg's love interest, Lucian Carr. When we met, I asked Dane to give me a synopsis. Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, Allen Ginsberg goes to Columbia. He meets Lucian Carr, and Lucian Carr is the person that's responsible for introducing Ginsberg, Kerouac, and Burroughs all to each other. But also, as Allen and Lucian are kind of getting wrapped up in one another, Lucian's also dealing with a very overbearing relationship with this older man named David Kammerer, and then he murders him. I've spent my whole life, of course, you know, being told stories about the beat poets. Everybody, I think, at some point in high school or college ends up reading On the Road and Howl. I have never heard of this story. I honestly thought that this was a fictionalized version of real events until the crawl at the end that tells you this was true. Had you heard of this story? I mean, were you familiar with the beat? Uh, you know, familiar with the beats kind of like you were, you know, just like what you come across growing up. But this story, no, like I had no idea. I didn't even know who Lucian Carr was. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Lucian worked very hard to make sure that this story became a footnote in the history of the beats. The first publication of Howl is dedicated to Lucian Carr, and he had his name removed from all subsequent publications. Kerouac and Burroughs, one of the first books they wrote together, was called And the Hippos Were Boiled in Their Tanks, and it actually recalls these events leading up to the murders. Um, but Lucian made sure that book wasn't published until after he died. I think he died in 2006, and the book was published in 2008. 
now you're a scholar of the beats, it sounds like. Well, that's about all I got. <laughs> so. Watching this movie, it was interesting. I was putting it in the larger sort of cultural context. There are a lot of movies out now set in the 60s and the 70s, especially exploring the creative explosions that were happening in America at that time. I think there's a parallel conversation going on that somehow this period of time is more fallow artistically, especially in movies, which is a theory I completely don't agree with. But I'm wondering for you, as somebody who's involved in the arts right now, like who are the beat poets of, of now, like the guys that are sort of on the vanguard for you? Well, I mean, I think uh, I've been listening actually to a lot of Macklemore lately in terms of at least uh, reinventing a, a genre or a kind of thing. Like it's really nice to hear uh, somebody that's rapping about socially relevant issues, but still doing so with an artistic passion. This would be the, the rap artist Macklemore who works with Ryan Lewis. Yeah, his song Wings, which is, you know, it's it, it goes through the evolution of all the shoes that he uh, had as a kid and like it's like a, a comment on consumerism, but it's a very like kind of serious, beautiful song. And there's like a cello in it and a children's choir. And, you know, that song, I think it's hard to say that makes him a beat poet of rap music, but it reinventing the genre, I think, in a really cool, interesting way. So your next big movie is a Spider-Man movie, which I'm guessing has a budget and scale of approximately 10,000 times this film. Tell me about the cultural whiplash of that. What was the difference between day one on that set and day one on this set? Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, the budget is it's incomparable. It's just, at one point, they literally built Times Square in Long Island. <laughs> that was less expensive than shooting in Times Square? That's the most amazing part of that yeah, story. because I think they had to shoot there for like three weeks, you know, so it was just, it was just cheaper to build it. <laughs> just build it. It's crazy, but honestly, like, it's just about letting the circumstances of the film, like, how is it going to work to your advantage? So in Kill Your Darlings, you have 24 days to shoot, but in a way, it, you don't have time to think. You just have to kind of do it, and there can be something really rewarding in that kind of experience, especially making a film about the beat poets that are kind of all about, like, naked self-expression and just letting things fly. And then, you know, on Spider-Man, you have uh, never-ending resources like anything you can dream up can just appear so and you have all of this time what was the thing that you were most amazed could be made to materialize with those resources i'm imagining somebody going we need 15 ferraris i mean not far from the truth i mean i i think if someone did need 15 ferraris and you know you would have to obviously like have a really good reason but it in theory it could happen it's just it's insane i don't really want to give like a specific example because I don't want to give away anything in the film, but it's just like if you were doing a scene and all of a sudden you were like, oh, I just think this scene would be a lot better like if I was petting like a, an exotic peacock. And everyone agreed. All of a sudden you would probably have like five different kinds of peacocks to choose from. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What is the question that you are really sick of being asked? Um... Where do you see yourself five years from now? I mean, I, I guess I can imagine it. You're kind of, you're a rising star. So people are kind of looking ahead for you in a way. I get asked that question all the time. And it's like, if someone asked me five years ago, like, where would you be five years from now? I would really have sold myself way short. What would you have said five years ago? What would your answer have been, do you think? Probably I would be living in a really terrible apartment in... New York and not working as an actor and struggling and just fighting the good fight. You made it a little bit farther than that. I have. Here's our second question. It's sort of the flip of that, which is tell us something we don't know 
about yourself, or it can be just some piece of trivia that you think would blow people's minds? Well, we were talking before this about uh, this water that I drank the other day. We were talking about the fact that water is now on the menu at restaurants sometimes. Yeah, water has they've started to make water into like a luxury item almost. And I was at this bar the other day and I, someone poured me a glass of, it was called sap water. I don't know exactly. It's like water, like from the sap of a tree. I don't even really understand. It runs down the bark of the tree or it's actually pulled out of the... I think it's pulled out of the sap. So it's like, is it, is it really good water or just really terrible maple syrup? It's really, so, so I was really skeptical and I tried this water and it was like oddly the most delicious water I'd ever had in my life. And I kept bringing it to everybody. And I was like, you just need to try this water. And everybody was skeptical at first and then tried it. And they were like, that's really crazy. You're not, you're not a spokesperson for sap water, are you, secretly? I am not a spokesperson for sap water. You can't use public radio to commercialize this thing. You made me do it. <laughs> so Brendan, be that as it may. He was really into that water. <laughs> he really was. I just, I went to a place here in LA with a full water menu, like a wine menu. <laughs> okay. Did not feel right to me. <laughs> but wait a second, LA is a city in the desert. It, water should be a luxury item. That's fine. I'm just saying the term water flight <laughs> yeah. should be okay. for describing seagulls. <laughs> or a dance ensemble. Yeah, maybe. But folks, Dane's movie, Kill Your Darlings, that I can get behind. It is in select theaters this Wednesday. eavesdrop. David Picker produced movies for 50 years. He headed Hollywood studios like Paramount and United Artists, also known as UA. His new memoir, Maybes, Musts, and Nevers, recounts his adventures bringing the Beatles and James Bond to the screen. Today we overhear him tell some tales about another guy you might have heard of. Hi, my name is David Picker. Um, You've invited me for dinner, but I think you really want me here to tell you some stories. So... um... I'll try you one of my favorites, which is wanting to be in business with Woody Allen and what it was like. People always ask me about my relationship with Woody Allen, and of course, it it is very special. I'd seen his movies, and I'd wanted him to make movies for us at UA. So I called Sam Cohn, who was his agent, and I said, let's get together and let's talk about an arrangement. He said, great. So I met Woody. We hit it off right away, and United Artists, through me, made a six-picture deal with Woody Allen. And the terms were unique. All he had to do was tell me the story in outline. And if I said, okay, he should just go off and make it. So Sam calls and says, Woody's ready. He's got his first idea. I said, great. I said, oh, this is exciting. He says, okay, well, here it is. He said, it's about a musician with a cocaine problem. And I said, Woody, it's approved for the sixth picture in the deal. I want a comedy, okay? Something funny, please. Okay, I'll get back to you. A few days go by, Sam calls and says, Okay, Woody's got a comedy. Title is Bananas. I said, It's approved. And Woody went off and and made Bananas. Woody made some pictures for us, and as was his want, he occasionally asked non-professionals to consider playing a role. His casting person was the fabulous Juliet Taylor, and Juliet said, Woody would like you to come in and read for him. And the film is entitled Crimes and Misdemeanors. And uh, I said, what, what? I mean, that's crazy. He says, will you do it? The worst is you get it. The second worst is you don't get it. What difference does it make? I do what, what he asks. And the next thing I get a call from Julie. And she says, you're in the movie. 
we'll pick you up at 7 a.m. Do you mind riding with some of the other actors? I get picked up and Martin Landau is in the limo with me. Uh, Martin Landau, a serious actor. It's Martin Landau and David Picker in the actor's limo going out to location. Okay, so we get there and uh, the AD comes up and says, uh, David, it doesn't look as if you'll be shooting until after lunch. So now I have lunch at the actor's table and I knew most of the crew. I, I knew pretty much everybody and everybody was laughing their heads off. I mean, what is this guy doing here? In the film, it's the opening scene of the film where I'm some distinguished person and I'm introducing these fabulous guests. So, you know, I make my speech and everybody says it's great and life goes on. A few months go by and I'm in Toronto shooting a film. Julia Taylor calls and says, Woody has to resuit the scene. I said, what do you mean? He, I screwed it up. She says, no, it's not you. He's famous for reshooting scenes. He wants to make an adjustment. I said, but I can't do it. I was producing a movie, and I felt I couldn't take a couple of days off, so they shoot it without me. And I, I see the movie, and I see Bill Bernstein, who used to work for me, who's playing my role. And I send Woody a note. And I said, Woody, I saw the movie. I loved it. I said, I have one critique. I really think in the opening scene of the movie, the actor who was playing the MC wasn't up to your usual standard of excellence. But the rest of the movie, it was really great. And I get a letter back from him. He says, Dear David, thanks for the letter. I really appreciate it. I actually agree with you. I was not happy with it. Unfortunately, the actor I wanted to use was in Europe having a sex change operation. Love, Woody. David Picker, his new memoir is called Maybes, Musts, and Nevers. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Sold. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Yes, Enrico, a long-standing parlor game among food fans, is predicting the next trendy cuisine. Of course. A couple years back, that would have been Peruvian food. It'd be Scandinavian now. That's right. Well, actually, now Filipino food is having its day. So you had an excuse to go eat some for free? <laughs> actually, I did. Well done. <laughs> Success. Thanks, Trendspotters. <laughs> In New York, several Filipino restaurants have opened up, and Nicole Ponseca owns two of them. She is a Filipino-American who gave up a gig at the ad firm Saatchi & Saatchi to share her family's cuisine. Wow. The other day, I met her at her restaurant, Maharlika, and I asked her why it's taken so long for Filipino food to catch on. We're the highest-growing minority, highest-educated, highest-income, and no one knows our food. Every hospital you go to, someone Filipino is taking care of you. Yeah. Could, could that be part of the story? Is it that Filipino immigrants didn't focus on restaurants and instead they went into healthcare or another profession? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we very much value education and status jobs for ego, you know, to say my daughter is a nurse or my daughter is a doctor, but also it's risk averse. So we're, we were not asked to become entrepreneurs. We were not asked to run a restaurant. In fact, I held this as a secret from my parents until the press started coming out because I didn't want them to be disappointed that really? I was doing a restaurant. So you were secretly opening this restaurant yeah. in New York? And then only because they found the press and they were like, Nicole, what is this Facebook post about your restaurant? And well, you're not in advertising anymore. I was like, uh, yeah, no, I have a Filipino restaurant. So what was their reaction? This was their reaction. Stone face, <laughs> silence. Their reaction was like, 
what about health insurance? What about your savings? You know, yeah. like they were concerned not. for you. So let's talk about the food itself. What are some of the broad themes of Filipino food? I say that Filipino food is the soul food of Asia, and we're almost the original Asian food. We were Malay, um, descendants of Malay. And then you name a country when we were probably conquered by them, were colonized. So you take a little bit of Chinese and noodles and stir fries and the idea of fresh vegetables quickly cooked um, with uh, simple garlic or aromatics like chives and stuff to one pot stews that we got from Spain, like deep stews that you cannot mimic in an hour. And also out of practicality, because while we're picking in the rice field, that meat is that cheap meat, that cheap cut is tenderizing so much. And like the, the fattiness and the meatiness is mixing with potatoes and tomatoes and vegetables. That is Spain. Uh, and then melee, the use of coconut milk and fermented shrimp paste. So you have all these things and it's a soul food. It's also not precise. It's not like Japanese, which is so beautiful and specific. Can you just give me some of the hits? We'll do half of a David Letterman's kit. Okay. The top five top Filipino five. dishes. Okay. Coming in on number five is lumpia. What is lumpia? So lumpia is um, a spring roll, and every Asian culture has some sort of spring roll, uh, um, some sort of vegetable or meat filling that's wrapped in a rice crepe and fried. Um, number four on the list would be pancit. Pancit, okay, tell me more about this. So pancit, it just means noodles. And just like in Italy, for example, you'll have spaghetti carbonara or fettuccine alfredo. And what kind of noodles are they? Um, all rice noodles um, in varying thickness or length. What is the flavor profile? What differentiates it from spaghetti carbonara or pad thai? What are, would be some Filipino classic flavors? Um, fermented trim paste or fermented fish sauce called patis or bagoong. Sounds good. Yeah, it's so good. I interrupted your list here. We're at number three. I'm probably going to get some debate over this, but I would say for me it is adobo. Adobo is our national dish uh, in the Philippines. That's what they call it anyway. It's any dish that is made with a, a lot of vinegar, uh, soy sauce, bay leaf, peppercorns, and garlic. So this is, this is the vinegar kind of stew, vinegary stew that I've heard about when I think of Filipino cuisine. Yeah, and the, why it's so in, special to the Philippines is because it's been said that we are the ones that invented stewing food with vinegar to protect it during like typhoon season. You can literally sit and sit and it just gets better and better. Mm. Um, and it's so sour and it's so salty and it, you have to eat so much rice with it. It's so good. But it's only number three. It's only number three because there are two other dishes that just really sing to me as being a Filipino. Um, number two on my dish would be arroscaldo. Which is? Um, arroscaldo is a rice porridge. And you can see some of our Chinese influence. So it's intense ginger and garlic and chicken broth. We make a little saffron oil to put on top. Okay, so then what's number one? Number one for me, and it's only me, so I can't speak for everyone, is kare kare. Kare kare, which is? Kare kare is our oxtails. It's slow cooked. My dad would cook it on um, special occasions for me. He would cook it for hours. It's with the peanut butter sauce and the fermented shrimp paste. And I, I really want to say there's so much more. Like there's tenola, there's like. Yeah. But for me, the reason why it was so poignant is because I remember distinctively when I was four and my mom said, don't feed her the fish paste. She won't like it. Or maybe she's already too Americanized. Maybe she won't honor being Filipino. And my dad was like, no, this, this girl is Filipino. She'll love it. And I, and I ate it up, and, I, and I've loved it ever since. Oh, wait. Did you, is that a story that you test marketed Sachi Sachi? Stop it. No, that's the truth. 
Enrico, Nicole proceeded to feed me everything on that list. Oh, man. All great. Nice. A lot of food. But I was most intrigued by their national condiment, banana ketchup. Really? It looks like ketchup. American GIs brought ketchup to the Philippines. Okay. But the locals didn't have tomatoes, so they made it from bananas. Tastes like bananas meets ketchup. It's banana chip or something. Not awesome on a Sunday. All right. Everybody think about that while we take a break. We will be back with etiquette from the descendants of Emily Post. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we will hear a new tune from Texas singer-songwriter Bill Callahan. And coming up, we meet a man who helped make New York City look like it does. But first, it is time for our weekly etiquette lesson. That's correct. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave, and we often invite celebrity guests to answer them. But once a month, we call in the bona fide etiquette experts. Yes. And I'm, of course, talking about Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and also co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. Lizzie, Dan, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So first of all, we have something we should just be straight with you guys about. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. We um, we cheated on you with Miss Manners. We had her on the show to answer listeners' questions a few weeks back because she had a new, new book out. What could we do? Um, mm-hmm. And, I mean, she said that it was okay. Yeah. She said but specifically that it was not being disloyal to you and that you guys are all... you guys are on the same team, that there are so many rude people that you all... You're like an army of etiquette. Of course she'd say that, but, boys. Of course she'd say that. <laughs> and this is where you say she was excellent, but, you know, we're just so glad to have you back. Yeah. <laughs> That's on. weird because that is how we feel. Yeah, That's I feel closer true. to you now. Is that possible after? Wow. That is funny. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, we... I'm going to have to see if I can still trust you guys, and that's going to take time to rebuild. And putting on my sincerity. <laughs> We, we, we love Miss yeah. Manners. She's we awesome. We do. We actually love Judith Martin. She's great. Do you hang? Do you, do you have uh, great, great tea parties together? Not yet. Frankly, she's a little out of my league. Really? Oh, well, wow, I think of her as really established. She's, she's been in the game. Ouch. Maybe. Oh, man. Never discredit yourself, cuz. <laughs> no. Wow. Credit mm. where it's due. You're the new way. Credit where it's due for sure, but you get it too, you know? We shouldn't have even brought this up. Maybe the polite oh. thing to do would have been not to talk about it. Uh, Maybe we should just move on to our questions. Let's do that. That's a great idea. All right. Here's something from Jackie <laughs> in Naples, Florida. Dan is wiping sweat from his brow. He's glad we're past that part. Jackie in Naples, Florida writes, If you are hosting a party where guests are predominantly couples and they ask you where to sit at the table, should you seat boy, girl, boy, girl with people not sitting next to their significant others or girls at one end of the table and boys at the other? Or should folks just sit next to their spouse? What are your thoughts on seating arrangements? Oh, classic well, question here. Yeah, it is a really classic question. And traditionally, yeah, you would sit boy-girl order with spouses not sitting next to each other. Okay. I tend to shy away from doing the, the men at one end, women at the other end, yeah. or on various sides, because I think that that gets just a little weird. A little childish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, what year is this? Boys versus girls. But I also have seen my mother seat people many a time just saying, wherever you feel comfortable, wherever you'd like. Like, I've got to uh, say that like this sounds more like something that you'd hear about at the White House, this kind of formality of seating. It's, it's or... definitely protocol for sure, yeah. I, I was thinking east-west coast. On the east coast, a little more traditional, maybe assigned seating, maybe west mm-hmm. coast. It's 
Come as you are, <laughs> find your own seed. Yeah. We just eat granola outside together. <laughs> Cut open a bag, throw it out like feed for <laughs> people. No, but don't you think, I think the key thing, right, is to make sure people who are really close friends aren't next to each other because you want to, you do want to try to open up the room a bit. Um, you d- you definitely want to think about who's, who's going to get along well with each other, who's going to bring out conversation in each other. Mm-hmm. You're not going to want to put, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox fan right next to each other. <laughs> so you wouldn't have, say, John Boehner sitting next to Barack Obama. Right the now. danger of an eye roll is imminent. It could bring down our entire global economy. <laughs> nice. They can always chat over cigarettes outside. That's true. Yeah, That's true. There you go. All right. Well, Jackie, it sounds like we gave you, you can do whatever you want, basically. I think. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, isn't that true in the modern world? I mean, do we really have to ascribe to this? I've been in a casual setting. You can't, but I like Lizzie's answer. M- mix them up. Take people yeah. out of their comfort zone to generate a little interest. All right. There you go, Jackie. Okay. Here's Robbie in West Los Angeles. Robbie writes, I've been living in this tiny ramshackle apartment with a courtyard, and I really like it. I only have a few neighbors, but many of them smoke. And their favorite place is at the communal picnic table right outside my unit. The smoke gathers and comes in through my heating duct, not pleasant in my living room. But it's obvious that it's the nicest place for them to light up. Should I say something? It's going to be a major buzzkill for them, literally. (laughs) And I can probably live with it. This is a great question. Yeah, this is an awesome question. I have a similar question in New York here. My neighbors smoke, and it drives me crazy. They're wrestling with it in Burlington, where they're banning smoking on the public streets. Um, I I definitely like the awareness that smokers are bringing to thinking about the environments that they're in. This living situation, it might be tough to break up that kind of a social particularly if they're already stepping outside. Mm-hmm. I, I would get specific here and look at maybe that vent. Maybe there's something you can yeah. do to the vent. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a way to just close it Dan. when the session's going on or whatever it is. That's mm-hmm. that's interesting. It's rare that we hear actually etiquette in favor of the smokers anymore smokers, in society. Yeah. Well, they need they do need a place to go. And it, it is important to recognize that they have every right to smoke and they are doing the right thing by smoking outdoors. So I think the best thing you can do is talk to a super about, you know, is, is there anything I can do to but, close that vent? But there's science now that says second Secondhand smoke is equally as damaging to the lungs sure. as firsthand oh, smoke. Oh, that's right. I forgot. You're trying to find reasoning for your neighbors. <laughs> well, I'm just Hold saying on. years ago, I think if this is a question about a restaurant, we'd say, no, you know, smokers need a place in the restaurant to smoke. And now we no, univer- almost no. universally don't think that's the case. So when does science start to trumps? Yeah, when when is when is the tipping point? You can't close the vent. Yeah, and, and it starts to really be a problem. You can't go to sleep at night. Yeah. Maybe you escalate, and that's the time to get the 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 person with the authority or the standing to address the situation. What about being passive aggressive? What about destroying the table? Stuff like that, or kind <laughs> yeah, of. Yeah, we um, haven't had a passive aggressive answer in a while. I would cook something that smelled awful and blow it on them with a fan. <laughs> Just pull the picnic table ten feet away. Here's our passive aggressive answer. You leave a note on the picnic table that says, I'm so happy that you can enjoy conversation and your cigarettes outside because it does help the building so much, but I do wish that you could blow the smoke out of my general direction mm-hmm. as I don't enjoy it in my living room. I, I, do you think it'll work? No. no. <laughs> Not <laughs> the smokers. They'll smoke more. It sounds like the smoke gathers and travels in the vent. The yeah, way yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not going to be easy yeah. unless they have a fan. Yeah. The other thing that, and I, I hate to have to say this, but you do choose to live there, and at some point yep. you can choose to leave. Oh, 
man. And Robbie, you choose to live in LA where people can sit outside a lot of the time. So why don't yeah. you move somewhere colder? That's true. And as they often say, living in LA, <laughs> breathing the air, you're smoking cigarettes, basically. Poor Robbie, though. I feel like yeah. we did not give him a real answer. No, I think you've got it. I think we kind of showed how complicated it is. It sounds like okay. people need a space to smoke outside. They live there, too. But if it yeah. really starts to get really bad, then after talking to the super, you might have to leave. Look who's getting good at the etiquette. Yeah, of yeah okay, Brendan. A student. We should just have Brendan answer you know why? You know how I got better? Miss Matters. I have to <laughs> oh, tell you. Oh, she really God. brought... <laughs> I didn't say that, you guys. She just really made everything so clear. Just, uh... um, <laughs> By the anyway... way, Sam has a look of shock on his face at that. His eyebrows just hit the ceiling. <laughs> Sam, one of our studio engineers, cannot believe his ears. Yes. Uh, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, thanks for telling our audience how to be polite. Thank you. It's so good to see you. You've got some work to do on Brendan. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition, no relation to Miss Matters. No. And folks, if you want to learn how not to say hurtful things to your guests, send us an email about it and we'll share it with either the Post or some barely qualified person of note. Go to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we get schooled in a dinner party-worthy topic. Today our subject is design, and our expert is Massimo Vignelli. He and his wife, Leila, are considered among the world's most influential designers. Born in Italy, they moved to New York in the early 60s and changed the way America looks, literally. They brought the now-ubiquitous Helvetica typeface to the United States. They have designed the New York subway signage and maps. They've done branding for American Airlines, Ford, Bloomingdale's, created dinnerware, furniture, lots of things. There's a new documentary out about them called Design is One. And Massimo, thanks for joining us. I want to start with a really basic question. What does a designer do? Well, a design works hard to begin with, you know, to solve other other people's problems, (laughs) generally speaking, you know, and using visual languages in doing that, basically. A client comes with a problem, you listen, you try to interpret that, what his needs are, not his wants, be mm. careful. Yeah. <laughs> so what I've done all my life, I start with a pencil and um, I start to design. In the movie, you make an interesting point about the difference between a designer and an artist. Well, design is very different from art. Art doesn't need a client, basically. Well, a designer without a client is out of business, you know. So you are trying to meet someone's needs. Mm-hmm. Sometimes hear- sometimes the needs are even ours. Let's say that we, we are doing an interior or a restaurant or whatever it may be, and we need a chair, and we can't find a chair that is appropriate for that particular situation. Hmm. So we design it. This is why we say, when you can't find it, design it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which is the motto that we hear throughout yeah. the film. Design is really popular right now. Lots of documentaries about designers. Apple, one of the country's most successful companies, is design-focused. And all this kind of strikes me as odd because... It seems to run counter to the idea of the designer, you know, the idea of being invisible, disappearing and letting your product or or graphic serve its function. Well, design is popular today mostly because of misunderstanding of what design is all about, and there's big confusion between design and styling. Hmm. Really what people know for design is actually styling. 
Styling is ephemeral. Styling is a byproduct of the notion of obsolescence. Styling has no long life, you know. When it's the design, it's just the opposite. Mm. Design is designed to last forever. Give me an example of styling. Cars. Okay, like, you know, a, like a contemporary car will they'll cash, go out of fashion. Yeah, fashion, cars, or uh, any kind of a junky design that you see around most of the time, <laughs> it is styling. Most of the products you see in the supermarket or in any other place are styling. Styling is inbred in the American notion of uh, what design is, which is a mis- misunderstanding, really, of what design is. You see, in America, design is intended as an incentive to sales, which is wrong. Hmm. That is really the, the wrong aspect. Design is a solution of a problem. Uh, it's interesting to, to hear you say that Americans view design as a, as a way to help sell things, and mm-hmm. yet one of your iconic designs is Bloomingdale's, for example. Okay. Isn't, wasn't the entire function of oh, yeah. designing that to get people to recognize it so well, they will come is, shop at well, Bloomingdale's? Uh, you use the right word, recognize it. The purpose of that design is identification, basically. Mm. It's not selling anything. It's just making it identifiable. Mm. So you design a logo, and the logo has those two O's together, mm-hmm. you know, which is a ligature, which is a classic ligature, not a great invention. So there's a a scene in the film, it's a scene from your act- your life, where you were designing plateware for Heller, mm-hmm. uh, and you created this clever, minimal plastic plateware that can mm-hmm. stack and do things. And there's a mug for hot coffee with a handle that you designed. And it's hard to describe this on the radio, but essentially that the handle was such that it acted like a gutter if you filled the coffee mug up too high. Yeah, it's for yeah. putting your finger. Yeah, yeah, it's for putting your thumb on, you can yeah. put it in this ridge, but if mm-hmm. you filled up the cup too high, it would spill out of the ridge. Mm-hmm. You, being from European background, knew, knew this was a demi cup, and this, this cup was not meant to be ever filled to the top, yet Americans fill up a cup of joe, and they were spilling it. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out to be fine. You know, <laughs> uh, in the, it, it's, it's in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, uh, how do you know you, when you're ahead of your time versus just being wrong? Well, it wasn't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't wrong. But it, people weren't able to drink their coffee in America for a while. Well, they, this is good. But they do it once, but then they learn, <laughs> which at the end is, a, is an adva- turns into an advantage. It's very rude to fill up the cup all the way to, at the top, <laughs> you know. And uh, so they learn how to be civilized, as I say, <laughs> by filling it up less. <laughs> but ultimately, that, well, that's you're on the radio. You don't make noises. <laughs> Why don't you make bad noises on the radio? Because it's uncivilized. So that's the and equivalent. That's the Would be a poor design decision exactly. is the equivalent of making disappointment. Exactly. Hmm. Even if making a bad a bad noise, you could claim that it's part of your freedom. It's not part of your freedom. It's part of just part of your being unpolite or uncivilized. Mm. You know? well, I the ju- same thing is there, you know. Uh, I mean, visual things have the same relationship to uh, sound uh, mm. or other things, you know. That's Gesture, body language, everything has a meaning. You see, this is the point. This is what design is all about. It's yeah. decodifying the meaning of things. So does it ever bother you that more people don't know about your and Layla's contribution to the world? Uh, everyone, for example, everyone who takes the subway in New York walks by signs that you influence the typography of, uh, and no one knows it was you. Oh, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, and it has 
tremendous impact. You know, it transforms the taste of people. And the taste transforms other things as well, other aspects. You know, it influences everything. So uh, it's not that we change the society, but we're part of the change. You are part of the change. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming to chat with me today. Thank Thank you. you, indeed. Enrico, I have to say I've never been more self-conscious than while interviewing Massimo. Really? Yeah, all of a sudden I started questioning everything from the kind of glass I served him water in <laughs> to, like, the font on our studio <laughs> sign. It was pretty, like, pretty intense. It's like cooking for Mario Batali. <laughs> I imagine it is. If your world was made of food. <laughs> uh, the documentary about the Vanellis is called Design is One. It was directed by Kathy Brew and Roberta Guerra. It comes out this week. And folks, that concludes the Dinner Party download for this week. Alas, but if you want to keep up with us between shows, we are easily distracted by social media. Join us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of the Dinner Party download. Our interns are James Delahousie, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. Engineering assistance was provided this week by Brendan Willard. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. American original Bill Callahan released his new album Dream River about a month back, and it's been flowing through our speakers ever since. Mm. Here's a track from it called The Sing. Bon appétit. Drinking while sleeping Strangers Unknowingly Keep me company In the hotel bar Looking out a window That isn't there the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. <coughs> Excuse You're me, right? I just need some water. Oh, use yeah. this glass I designed. I think this is a window pane. Well, I think you're behind the times. Okay, it's still a window pane. You'll see. <laughs>